0: As we go to prayer this morning, I'd like to read a couple of verses from Micah chapter 7. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you did swear to our forefathers from the days of old. One of the greatest blessings we have is to know that God has cast our sins, our iniquities, into the depths of the sea to be remembered by Him no more, and that He has compassion on us just as He had on Abraham and Jacob. Our Father, we thank You that You are a compassionate God, that You're God of mercy, that You're a God who chooses by, the, by Your own will to cast our sins into the depths of the sea, as it were, as we confess them to You. And so, Father, we come to You today acknowledging that we are in need of Your cleansing each and every day, acknowledging that we need Your Spirit to quicken our minds that we might have understanding and open our hearts that we might receive truth, that as we look at Your Word and read of the events involving people who lived 3,000 years ago, we'll understand the relevance of those lives and of the teaching that comes from those lives because Men and women have not changed throughout the history of the human race. You also are changeless, Lord, in a a much greater way, in a way that uh, we look up to and one day we look to the fact that we will be changed to be in the likeness of Christ. We trust that that process has already begun. And Father, I ask you now to instruct us through your Spirit from your Word today, in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin today by... Turning to the first chapter of 2 Samuel and reading the first 10 verses. Now it came about after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David remained two days in Ziklag. And it happened on the third day that, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And it came about when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. Then David said to him, From where do you come? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did things go? Please tell me. And he said, The people have fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and Jonathan his son are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son, Jonathan, are dead. The young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And behold, Saul was leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. And when he looked at me, he saw me and called to me, and, he said, and I said, Here am I. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. <laughs> then he said to me, Please stand by me and kill me, for agony has seized me, because my life still lingers in me. So I stood, I stood beside him and killed him, because they knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head and the bracelet which was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. This morning I want to help us again to just see the um, locations we're talking about. Uh, David is down here at Ziklag, which is 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 somewhere in this region. It may not be exactly that dot. They haven't been able to specifically identify the spot because Ziklag was not a very large town. And Mount Gilboa is up here. The battle occurred near Jezreel on the flanks of Mount Gilboa. So this Amalekite has run or traveled from here all the way down to here by whatever route he took. Most likely route would be this way because the Philistines, of course, had punched into the land this way. He's not likely to go over there because the Philistines the Amalekites were not good friends either. And so he probably ran down the ridge route, which would have taken him roughly this way. And then he made the uh, detour to go out here towards, towards Ziklag to encounter whomever was at Ziklag. Looking at the first verse of this particular passage, where we read that now about, uh, uh, it came about after the death of Saul that David had returned from the slaughter. Think of the contrast there. Saul, the faithless, has been destroyed by the enemy of Israel. David, the faithful, has destroyed the enemy of Israel. Contrast is stark, as clear as night is from day. The faithless will be destroyed, the faithful, will have victory, and always will it be obvious physical victory like this was, but for you and for me, it definitely will be the victory that counts, which is the spiritual eternal victory that we experience through Jesus Christ. The scripture tells us it's, it's the third day after David has returned from, from his slaughter of the Amalekites. David had pursued the destroyer. Now if you weren't with us as we finished up Second Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel, the Amalekites had come up, you see the word Amalekite down here, the Amalekites had come up and they had raided this whole region in here, and they had destroyed the city of Ziklag. David had pursued, at the, he was away at the time, and when he returned, he found the city destroyed and all of their families carried off into captivity and all their goods. So David had pursued the Amalekites down into, the scripture says, into the, uh, on the way to Shur, and Shur is in the wilderness over here in the northern end of the Sinai Desert. And the scripture tells us that he overtook the Amalekites, he destroyed the Amalekites, he recovered everything. Every single person, man, woman, and child that had been captured by the Amalekites, he recovered every single one of them. And he brought them back. So this is the third day after he had returned from that foray against the Amalekites. And on that third day, a report comes about the battle on Mount Gilboa. Now David certainly knew that there was going to be a battle up north because he, remember, he had been with the Philistines when the Philistines were preparing for the attack on Israel. He didn't know what happened after that because he had been told to go home. The Philistines didn't trust having an Israel in their army, an Israelite in their army, while they were fighting Israelites, you know. And, And so the irony of this passage is that of all the people who could have brought a report, it was an Amalekite, the very people... One of the very people he had just slaughtered. The Amalekites were a nomadic people. Most, most of these people were nomads. The Ishmaelites, the Midianites, the Amalekites, many of them were nomadic. Now, not all of them were. The Moabites, the Edomites, the Ammonites tended to be more sedentary. They built towns and, and developed uh, their civilization in a particular place. But some of these were more like the Arabs, who, who basically have been historically a nomadic people. Now, did this man, this Amalekite runner who just came with this message, had he been a part of the actual Amalekite band that had attacked the Negev and had destroyed and burned Ziklag? Well, we don't know. There were numerous tribes or or clans of Amalekites, but it's very possible that he was part of that invading group which had come up in here and had attacked up towards Hebron, probably not as far as Hebron, but at least through this region in here. It's possible that during that invasion, he broke off as maybe a spy and that he traveled north to kind of spy out the land further to the north. We don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us why this Amalekite was there on Mount Gilboa. But what we do know from the passage is that he was headed back south from the battle on Mount Gilboa. And whether he knew David was at Ziklag before he arrived there or not, we don't know. It could be that he was going to return to the Amalekite camp and he didn't know that the Amalekite camp had been destroyed by David. He'd been, you know, away. So there there are a lot of things we don't know here. But I think uh, he may have been surprised to discover David was at Ziklag, but he, he recovered from his surprise very quickly and tried to capitalize on the opportunity to possibly receive a reward from David. You know, we had the arm, gold armband from Saul and the crown that he said came from Saul's head. It's hard to believe that Saul would actually be wearing his crown out in the battlefield, but I don't think his crown was very elaborate anyway. I mean, it was a fairly a poor kingdom. Uh, Saul was the very first king and he was, he was more like a warlord than anything else. So it probably wasn't anything very elaborate anyway. What the scripture says is this Malachite, uh, Malachite comes chugging into Ziklag. And the scripture says that his clothes were torn and dust was on his head. You might say, wow, he had a tough trip. <laughs> but, but you all know, of course, that that was the standard practice in those days of demonstrating mourning. If you were in mourning, if you were in distress, you tore your clothes and you dumped ashes or dirt on your head so that everybody knew that you were in mourning. And, and hopefully that they would thereby take recognition of that. How long was that? How far? How long? take? Okay. to to make the trip? I mean, how long was he running with torn clothes and dirt on his head? (laughs) Uh, The trip from Mount Gilboa down to Ziklag would have been approximately 90 miles and would have taken him probably three days if he was moving right along. And pretty rough country on that ridge. Yeah, and it is rough country, much rougher then than it is now. But you're you're getting at a point that I was going to make here, and that is, (laughs) why were his clothes torn and why was dust on his head? He was an Amalekite, not an Israelite. So did he really care what happened to the Israelites up there? Was he really in mourning over the Israelite loss? No, it's possible. It's possible that he somehow might have uh, developed a friendship with somebody in Israel. He might have been a mercenary that was up there fighting along with the army. Of course, mercenaries don't usually have too much love that they give over to the army they're fighting with because they're only fighting for money. We we don't know any of those things. It's very possible that when he was traveling fast, he suddenly noted in the distance, oh, those are Israelites in Ziklag. Or it's very probable running south through Israel as an Amalekite. He decided that this would be a good disguise, tear his clothes, put dirt in his head, so that if anybody stopped him and said, who are you, what are you doing there, he'd say, oh, I'm a messenger from the Battle of Gilboa, what a tragedy has happened, I bring bad news and, and all of this, this would get him through. Or he could have been, specifically, he kind of redid it all, made the dust a little bit new to visit David, so that David would know he was really, really distressed. But what he understood? Whatever he knew about David, he certainly understood that this man was the chieftain, was a warlord, and therefore he better humble himself. So as soon as he came into David's presence, he cast himself on the ground and prostrated himself in more than a way you would do just meeting anybody out on the road. I mean, they tended to be more deferential than we are today to one another, but but to just throw yourself on your face on the ground, you didn't do that to everybody you came across. And so otherwise you wouldn't get very far. You know, there is actually a mountain. This has nothing to do with this. But there is a mountain in Tibet which is worshipped by Hindus. And they worship the gods of that mountain by traveling completely around the mountain, by prostrating themselves, getting up and standing where their head was, falling on their face again, getting up, standing where their head was. They prostrate themselves completely around the mountain. I mean, that is what you call dedication to your religion, right? Yet Christians, sometimes... Have a hard time finding any reason to even go to church. Well, David is very concerned about the outcome from the, for the battle. And so he immediately begins to interrogate the messenger. And the news was worse than David had feared. Not only was the Israelite r- army routed, large parts of it were slaughtered, and Saul and Jonathan had fallen on the battlefield. David respected Saul, not because he thought Saul was a good guy, but because Saul was the Lord's anointed. So he was not glad to hear that Saul had been slain. But I believe that he was thunderstruck when the words came that Jonathan had died as well. Jonathan was his closest, dearest friend on this planet. David was incredulous at the report. And so he closely interrogates this messenger. And you'll notice he, he, he says to him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan are dead? How do you know that? I mean, it, it, battle is chaos. You know, if you think modern battles are chaos, when, when you're fighting toe-to-toe, face-to-face, and, and, and you, all these swirling engagements are breaking out with horses and chariots and spears and arrows flying, talk about chaos. How could you know this, that Jonathan and Saul were dead? Now, the Jewish first-century historian Josephus, along with some other commentators of more modern times, have tried to reconcile the words of this Amalekite with the story we have of what happened to Saul that's given to us in the 31st chapter of 1 Samuel. You remember in that story we're told that Saul had been hit Saul was, in, was badly wounded, so he asked his armor-bearer to kill him so that the Philistines would not torture him and do bad things to him while he was yet alive. His armor-bearer said no, the scripture says he was afraid to respond. And so Saul him fell, himself, it says, fell on his own sword. There's no mention of any Amalekite. In this passage it says the Amalekite was standing right nearby and Saul was leaning on his spear. And the enemy was approaching and and Saul turned and said, hey, you know, why don't you come over and kill me? Well, some have tried to work the two together here by saying the Amalekite was his bodyguard. I don't think so. (laughs) What we have here is an Amalekite who has concocted a story. He's made this thing up. He's done it in order to receive a reward. Obviously, if he didn't encounter David when he got back to the Amalekites, think of the bragging rights he'd have. Here's the crown, I can prove it. Here's the armband, I can prove it. I killed the king of Israel. Ooh, you know. His report starts out very suspiciously because he says to David, I just happened to be on the battlefield. I was just minding my own business and there I was in the midst of a battle close enough to be able to be called out to by the king of Israel who would be at the very heart of the fighting. A wanderer is not very smart who just happens into the midst of a battle, especially amidst the army that's being annihilated by another army. To me, that reminds me of the idea of, you know, I'm just a horse rider, I'm just a cowpoke, I'm riding out on the range here, and I just happened to ride up while Custer's fighting his last moments of the little battle of the little bighorn and just happened to be there, you know. No, he didn't just happen to be there. It's much more likely that he came upon the scene and he witnessed the battle occurring. And he stayed out of harm's way as the battle was fought. And as the Philistines pursued the Israelites over the hill and down the valley, and things quieted down and there were dead bodies all over the hillside, that's when he came upon the scene. He was a scavenger, nothing more. And he happened to come across Saul's body. Now, you know, he must have known enough about Saul to to know his name and enough about Jonathan to recognize Jonathan. And, 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 of course, he took the armband off of Saul, and, and if his crown were still on his head or amongst his belongings, I mean, he's the first guy on the scene. The Philistines don't come back, the Scripture says, till the next day to loot the bodies. So this, guy, this guy's out there. He's got the mother load. You know, he's looting the bodies before anybody else does. And so he happens to come across Saul and Jonathan, and he sees Saul lying there with his own sword through his body. And it didn't take, uh, you know, an astrophysicist to figure out what had happened here. And he decides, well, there's nobody around that could deny the story, so I'll just say I killed him. But since I wasn't an enemy fighting in the battle, I have to figure out a way where where Saul asks me to kill him. And, of course, the fact that it's parallel to Saul asking his armor bearer is, is what causes commentators to want to try to merge the two stories together. At the very least, he felt that if he tells the story that Saul asked him to do this, then he could be viewed as someone who at least saved, you know, if the person he was talking to were an Israelite, at least saved Saul from a worse fate, or or did Saul's bidding. This passage further illustrates the serious consequences of concocting stories, making up things, of telling lies, We all have been taught, at least I was when I was a kid, that lying is not a good thing and lying will catch up with you. But it seems like even as adults, we don't really believe that. Uh, At least many of us don't in certain circumstances. and In one form or another, we're living a lie, telling a lie, implying a lie. And in the long run, it will catch up with us. He thought he had a foolproof foolproof story here. There was no one alive, as far as he knew, who could... uh, who could argue that his story was wrong. Now, we know that there obviously were people who could counteract his story because when Nathan and Gad wrote the last seven chapters of uh, 1 Samuel, they obviously got information from an eyewitness who told exactly what had happened, but was not there at the time the Amalekite was there who had left because of the pursuit of the Philistines. But he didn't know that there would be any eyewitness around. He obviously had no understanding of David's character. I'd like to read from Proverbs chapter 24 because there are a couple of verses there, well, many verses, but a couple I want to note that really give us some insight into character like the character of David. In Proverbs 24, reading at verse 17, we discover these words, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from your enemy. Now, I don't think the, proverb, the writer of the proverb, in this case, probably Solomon, but not necessarily, I don't think the writer of the proverb was implying anybody else than a human enemy. I don't think the writer of the proverb was saying, Do not rejoice when when Satan is cast down, because I think as children of God, we do rejoice when Satan is cast down, But, but we don't rejoice when another human being falls, even if that human being is empowered by evil. Scripture says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, and that should be our prayer, even concerning, yes, Osama bin Laden, as unlikely as that might be. And so... When Bed Laden is killed or captured, will we rejoice? I think we'll be rejoice. We will rejoice if justice is done. David was not rejoicing over the death of his enemy, because his enemy was the Lord's anointed king over Israel. And David believed as long as God anointed him, it's God's business what happens to him, not mine. That's why, as you well know, David would not touch him. As we read on now in the first chapter, beginning at verse 11 of 2 Samuel, Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien and a And David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, Go cut him down. So he struck him and he died. And David said, Your blood is on your head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. I think the Amalekite was a bit confused here about what was happening. This was not his plan. This is not what he was planning was going to happen. You and I know how it is that uh, before we encounter somebody uh, with whom we are expecting to have a very serious encounter, we sometimes rehearse that encounter in our heads before. And and, uh, hopefully we we will always put it in a good light as best as possible with a good result. And certainly that was what this Amalekite had done. Why, Why is David reacting to this good news in this negative way? David and his men tore their clothes. They didn't say, yay, throw their turbans in the air and and dance around, you know. They tore their clothes. And the scripture says they wept and they fasted for the remainder of the day. He came early in the morning and so they, they fasted apparently until evening. Why? They did so in honor of Saul, of Jonathan, and of the routed army of Israel. Saul was the one who had, in effect, proclaimed David to be his enemy. David had not proclaimed Saul to be his enemy. Even though in his account of this, what he saw as a mercy killing, at at the very least here, the man had said, in his account to to David, he had said, when Saul asked who I was, I told him I was an Amalekite, but David asks him here again to re-identify yourself. Just who are you now? And the guy says, I'm the son of an alien, a Amalekite. He probably didn't know that the ruins he was standing in the midst of where David and his men were, this destroyed city of Ziklag, had been destroyed by his own countrymen. He probably didn't know that David had just come back three days before from massacring hundreds, maybe thousands of Amalekites, probably this guy's, some of this guy's own relatives, he didn't know those things, probably. Otherwise, I don't think, you know, I, since he's already got himself in a lie, you might as well say, well, you know, I'm, I'm an Edomite. I'm, you know, I'm somebody else, you know, uh, even though they usually had characteristic dress that might have given him away. Now, David would not have excused anyone. No matter who he was, David would have excused no one for having laid his hand on the Lord's anointed. But just imagine if the person who professes to do this is an Amalekite. People whom God said to Israel they were to destroy off the face of the earth. People who had just carried off all of David's family and that of his men and destroyed the town in which he was living. Uh Not a name to endear itself to the heart of David or his men. This made it all the more certain that he deserved to die. He was, of course, convinced. The Amalekite was convinced that uh, that David would welcome the words, "Your archrival is dead, David. The man who pursued you for lo those many years through the wilderness, he is, he's gone." And so, when he heard David's words, which were recorded in verse 14, that was not what he expected to hear. How is it? You are not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. And that fear, which suddenly came into his heart, suddenly became horror. As we read in the next verse, and David called to one of the young men and said, Kill him, cut him down. Weren't these the people Saul was to destroy and didn't? Absolutely. If he carried out his first command, he wouldn't have lost his kingdom. This is true. He'd still be king. He probably wouldn't have died at Mount Gilboa. The Amalekite would never have had a story to tell. Yeah. There's a book that's recently been published, which is a book which describes what would have happened had the Japanese won World War II. I've not read the book. I don't buy books like that, <laughs> because that's not what happened. I'm a historian, not a you know, <laughs> a prognosticator of what could have happened uh, if something else had happened. But, but what Larry is saying over here is what could have been had Saul been obedient, a- and the whole story of first of and 2 Samuel would be a different story, I think. So disobedience actually changes the course of history. Now I have to say, of course, God knows the direction history is going no matter what. And God is the overarching superintending power of all of history. But I don't believe that God has literally gone down and dug a rat in the ground and said this is the channel through which history is going to flow and it's not going to deviate from this channel. God allows for humans to make their own choices. He knows what they're going to be and and he will bring about his ultimate plan no matter what. But there's wiggle room along the way. And Saul wiggled the wrong way, you might say. Just before David's young man struck him down, David read the the article of condemnation to him in verse 16 when he said, Your blood is on your head, for your mouth has testified against you, because you have said, I have killed the Lord's anointed. You've just condemned yourself. Just think how opposite this turned out from what this man had planned. I've got the armband of the king, I've got the crown of the king, I've got the story about how I killed the king of Israel. I am going to be exalted on high. He's dead. Just kind of a miniature human replay of the story of Satan. The anointed cherub who says, I'm going to exalt myself to be like God on high, and yet we know at the end he will be cast forever into the lake of fire. Not what he planned. It's obvious that the Amalekite totally misjudged David. And this illustrates to us a truth that existed then and exists now and and has existed throughout history, and that is that the pagan, the non-believer, cannot understand the mind and the heart of the believer. Cannot understand it. That's why we have all these people writing in newspapers and magazines and, and talking about the church as being a bunch of bigots, a bunch of narrow minded people who, who don't know the left hand from the right, you know, no understanding of what truly is the Word of God and what it is that we truly believe. Regeneration brings about a total transformation of the character of a person. And uh, let, me, let me just refresh our pure minds by going back to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And Paul is, is writing concerning some of these. Truths. And in Second Corinthians chapter 5, we read at verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Now right there we have a principle already that those who are Christ do not live for themselves, they live for Him. In verse 16, Therefore, from now on we recognize no man according to the the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know Him thus no longer. In other words, we don't appraise or determine a person according to the flesh, but according to his his or her new character in Christ. Therefore, if any man, any woman is in Christ, he, she is a new creature. Old things passed away, behold, things, new things have come. In our Protestant history in America, if you go back to the 19th century and, and you talk about a revival like the, the Second Great Awakening. It began actually at the end of the 18th century and carried over into the early part of the 19th century, which gave birth to so many wonderful things like the Sunday School Union, the American Bible Society, and, and really the missionary movement in North America. One of the phrases, however, that came out of that was frequently when somebody was transformed and began to live for Christ, they say, he got religion. I hate that phrase. He got religion. No. He don't got religion. <laughs> <laughs> He's been transformed. He's been born again. He's been regenerated, born anew. Jesus said, you, you, you can't know me unless you are born from above. So, so we're totally a new person. It's like being born a baby all over again, only in this case it's a spiritual baby. And we're different. And as we grow in him, we'll never, we can't ever go back to where we were before. We never see things the way we did before. And anybody who's not been born again cannot get that. Their minds, you know, there's a veil over their eyes, just as it was for the Jews who didn't understand uh, the message of the gospel of Christ. As a natural man, which the Amalekite was, he was completely blind blind to the truth of God that fills the heart of David, who was a spiritual man. Let Let me go back to 1 Corinthians, the second chapter reading the last three verses of the chapter, verse 14, 15, and 16. But a natural man, that's an unborn-again person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised or examined. But he who is spiritual examines all things, yet he himself cannot be genuinely examined by any man. The world cannot examine us because they don't understand us. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So we view things from the position of the mind of Christ, of course, to the degree that we have actually studied the Word of God. It doesn't become automatic. It's like a baby does not learn how to speak whatever language they grow up in unless somebody teaches the baby that language. You put the baby off in a corner and stay away from the baby and don't ever talk around the baby, the baby will just grow up a mute. And so we will, too, if we don't study the Word of God. The Word of God becomes uh, illumines the mind that we now have in Christ so that we can walk in the Spirit of Light. But the natural man does not understand us. And that's why we have all these articles that accuse the church and Christians of all kinds of things because they don't get the point. It never will, never will. And and that's the situation in in which we live today. And, and, and of course, unfortunately, we see that there are large communities within the church which have never been regenerated, and therefore they don't get the point either. David was a spiritual man. Oh, he was a man who, who had a lot of flaws, but he was a spiritual man. And the Amalekite did not understand him at all. He paid with his life, paid with his life. The Amalekite was driven by what we would call eros, self-love. David was driven by what would in the New Testament be called agape, uh, God-oriented, God-originated love. And, And the two were as far apart as you can be. And the Amalekite told the story of his killing of Saul for personal gain alone. And David reacted not out of his own feelings because he should have been glad. So obviously, his reaction was based in his jealousy for the honor of God's name. That's who he was really honoring by slaying this Amalekite for having touched God's man. Let me just say a couple more things about this. Some may criticize David for being too narrow-minded here. I mean, the poor guy didn't know what he was doing. You know, he thought he was doing a good deed, so why are you so... Harsh on him, David. But David believed that the sanctity of God's name and of God's word had to be defended. It was at stake. And you remember going back to First Samuel, the twenty-sixth chapter, when David and Abishai, his nephew, stood over the body of the sleeping Saul. And Abishai said, "Let me just, I'll just, I'll just strike once, just, and this guy will be dead, and we'll be out of here." And David said, I will not be a part of touching the Lord's anointed. Who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt is what he said to his nephew. So what we have to understand through all of this is David's ultimate motivation is to defend the name of his God. And the Amalekite serves as an example as did Achan. When he stole the stuff out of Jericho and hid it under his tent and denied it, and and then they took him out, they didn't just say, bad boy, give it back. They took him out with all of his family and they stoned him to death. That seems awfully severe, but it helps us to understand that honoring God's name and God's word is a life and death matter. Next Sunday, we'll pick up with verse 17 and read a lament that David wrote. Other than being rejoicing over the death of of Saul, he writes a lamentation, a eulogy, if you will, over the death of Saul and Jonathan.